Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders, by F. Lovell Coombs, Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. Disappointment, however, quickly gave place to a flutter of interest when the rear door opened, and preceded by Jack Orr there swept down the aisle a tall, venerable figure in flowing robes, white-bearded, spectacled, and crowned with a tall conical hat bearing strange hieroglyphics. When, on Jack stepping aside and taking an unobtrusive front seat, the aged professor mounted the platform and solemnly surveyed his audience, titters, then a burst of laughter swept over the schoolroom. The long yellow robe was covered with grotesque caricatures of cats, frogs, dogs, cranes and turtles, interspersed with great black question marks. The famed Oriental turned about toward a table, and the laughing broke out afresh. In the centre of his back was a large cat's head, with wonderfully squinting eyes. When the cat slowly closed one distorted optic in a wink, then smiled, there was an unrestrained shout of merriment and those who were not excitedly inquiring of one another the identity of the seer, settled back in their seats expectantly. Placing the table at the front of the platform, the professor again faced the audience, and with dignified air and deep tragic voice addressed them. "'Ladies and gentlemen, the chairman have spoke. I am Mahmoud Click, the great seer, the great mind-read.' the great bump-read, the great profess. Laughter. I am the seventeen son of the seventeen son of the seventeen son, and also have I bring for do the magic pass, thrusting a hand within his robe, Tom the terrible, the son of Tom, the son of Tom. The hand reappeared, and placed on the table a tiny black kitten. The burst of laughter which greeted this was renewed when the tiny animal began making playful passes at a spool on a string which the dignified professor held before it, remarking, "'See, the magic pass! Now Tom the Terrible will answer the question, and show he understands the English,' the magician announced, at the same time swinging the spool out of the kitten's sight." "'Tom, how old are you?' The spool was swung back. The kitten began again hitting at it, solemnly the professor counted to twenty, and whisked the spool away. Twenty year, correct! "'You see, ladies and gentlemen, the venerable cat, he cannot make mistake,' he observed amid laughing applause. "'Now, Tom, tell some other ting.' "'How old is the chairman?' indicating the dignified elderly man at the farther end of the platform. Five, Correct.' "'You see, he always is right, yes.' "'Now, Tom, how old is the Reverend Mr. Borden?' Seven, Correct again.' When the laughter which followed this demonstration had subsided, the professor took up a new line. Earlier in the evening a certain John Peters, one of the town's foppish young gallants, and who now occupied a prominent front seat, 
had widely announced the fact that he was present for the express purpose of showing the mind-reader up. At him, accordingly, the first quip was directed. "'Now, Tom, tells the audience, how many girl have Mr. John Wilberforce Peters?' was asked. "'What? None?' For the spool being held out of sight, the kitten gazed before it stolidly, without raising a foot. "'Well, how many does he think he have?' The spool being returned, the kitten tapped it ten times, paused, and struck it eight more, while the resulting wave of amusement grew, and the overdressed object glowered threateningly at the figure on the platform. "'And how many will he marry?' "'What? Not one?' "'Well, well,' commented the seer, to further hearty laughter. "'Now tell us about some of the young ladies,' the professor went on. "'How many bows has Miss K.O.?' While Kate Orr bridled indignantly, the spool was lowered, and the kitten tapped several times on one side, several times on the other, then, to an outburst of laughing and clapping, sat up and began hitting it rapidly with both paws. "'I was unable to keep the count,' announced the seer. "'But apparently about the seventy-five. Miss O, she is popular with the young men, yes.' "'And now, Tom,' continued the magician, "'how many special lady-friend have Mr. Cumming, an extremely bashful member of the choir? Twenty-two. And how many young lady are in the choir? Twenty-two. "'Ah!' A strange coincidence," observed the learned professor, amid much merriment. With similar quips and jokes the mind-reader continued, then giving the kitten into the charge of a little girl in a front seat, announced, "'Now I will read the head. Will some small boys please come up and bring their heads and bumps?' Coaxing finally brought a half-dozen grinning youngsters of eight or ten to the platform. From the pocket of the last to respond protruded the unmistakable cover of a dime novel. Him the professor seized first, and having gravely examined his head, announced, "'Ladies and gentlemens, for this boy I predict a great future. Never have I seen such sign of literary taste. Yes, he will be great, unless he go west to kill the Indian and the Indians see him first. On turning to the head of the second boy, the phrenologist started, looked more sharply, and slowly straightening up, announced, "'Ladies and gentlemens, I have made the great discovery. This boy some days you will be proud to know. Never have I seen such a lovely bump, for eats the pie, and any kind of pie you will name. He don't care.' he will eat it." And so, to continued laughter, he went on, finding remarkable cake-bumps, holiday-bumps, and picnic-bumps, and proportionately underdeveloped school and chore-bumps, with the exception of one glowing example, which finally proved to have been developed by a baseball bat. Then came the mind-reading. Placing a small blackboard on the front of the platform, facing the audience, the professor seated himself in a chair ten feet behind it, and invited someone to step to the board and write. "'All I ask is,' announced the mind-reader, "'please write not too fast, 
and fix the mind on what you write. And by the thought-wave will I tell it, letter by letter. The first to respond wrote the name of his father, a doctor. Expecting only some humorous guess as to what was written, the audience was somewhat surprised when the professor spelled out the name correctly, only adding the humorous touch of mud, hastily corrected to M.D., and, as others followed with figures, and more difficult names and words, the interest of the audience began to take on a new tone. The last of the first party which had stepped forward to write was the overdressed young man Alex had poked some fun at, and who was bent on showing him up. He wrote, You are a faker. "'Explain to the audience how I do it, then, Mr. Peters,' retorted the professor. In some confusion Peters sought his seat, and the minister approached the board. The interest of the audience had now become serious and silent. Even Kate Orr, though knowing there was trickery somewhere, was nonplussed. For Jack, in the front row, appeared as immovable and as frankly interested as those about him. Loosely folded in his lap was a newspaper which for a moment attracted Kate's suspicious eye, but watching closely she saw not the hint of a movement that might have been a signal. The minister's first word was the name Hosea. This was promptly called off, and the writer went on with others, gradually more difficult. Finally, in rapid succession, one under the other, he wrote, Zedekiah, Aholibah, Nebuchadnezzar. As readily the figure on the platform announced them, and the reverend gentleman turned away with an expression frankly puzzled. "'Pardon me, Mr. Professor, but since this is genuine mind-reading, of course you could read just as well with your eyes blindfolded, could you not? Would you kindly give a demonstration that way?' It was Peter's. There was immediate clapping at the suggestion, and calls of, "'Yes, yes, do it blindfolded!' In alarm, Kate, from her seat, gazed toward Jack. To her surprise, he was one of the most energetic in clapping the proposal. The professor himself, however, was plainly disconcerted, to the particular delight of Peters and his circle of friends, who, as the mind-reader continued to hesitate, clapped more and more loudly. Finally the seer arose. "'Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you wish, certainly.' though I do read just as good with my eyes open." This negative statement brought further derisive laughter and clapping from Peters and his friends, which was added to when the professor continued, "'Will some young lady be kind enough to lend me the handkerchief, the tiny little one with plenty holes all round?' Peters was again on his feet. "'Here is one!' It was a large, dark neckerchief obviously brought for this very purpose. As Peters stepped forward and mounted the platform, the professor removed his spectacles with apparent reluctance. Broadly smiling, Peters threw the folded kerchief over the mind-reader's eyes, saw that it fitted snugly, and tied it. "'Now we've got you, Mr. Smart, of Constantinople,' he whispered derisively. "'Have ze good time and laugh while you may.' responded the professor, and raising his voice he asked, "'Will someone kindly bring ze glass water? Mine reading, it is dry.' 
It was Jack started to his feet, passed down the room, and returned with the desired water. Watching, Kate expected to see a consultation between the two boys, as to some way out of the apparent difficulty. Jack, however, merely placed the glass in the extended hand, and received it back without the exchange of a syllable. Not only that, he returned to the back of the hall, and instead of resuming his seat at the front, mounted to a window-ledge at the rear. "'Well, I am ready,' announced the professor, "'and I make the suggestion that Mr. Peters himself write see first. The latter was speedily at the board. As he wrote, a silence fell. Previously the professor had called off each letter as written. This time there was no response. With a smile that gradually broadened to a laugh, Peters finished an odd Indian name and asked, "'A thoughtways haven't gone astray already, have they, Mr. Professor? Haven't been frightened off by a mere handkerchief, surely?' "'I was wondering how to pronounce it,' came the quiet response. "'I'll spell it instead. It is M-U-S-Q-U-O-D-O. B-O-I-T. Peters stared blankly, not more blankly than the majority of the audience, however, including Kate herself. She turned toward Jack. He appeared as surprised as Peters. Indeed, if there was anything suspicious, it was that Jack appeared a trifle over-astonished. As the burst of applause which followed the first surprise was succeeded by a wave of laughter, Kate turned back to discover Peters, very red in the face, drawing on the board a picture. As she looked, a grotesquely ugly face took shape. The face completed, there was a renewed burst of merriment when Peters topped it with a fool's cap, and on that sketched rough hieroglyphics. "'Now whose picture have I drawn?' he demanded loudly. "'Well, you tried to draw mine.' responded the professor, dropping into normal English, but as the dunce's tie is far up the back of his collar, I leave the audience to decide whose it is. At this there were shouts and shrieks of laughter, and Peters, hurriedly feeling, and finding his own tie far out of place, threw the chalk to the floor and dashed back to his seat amid a perfect bedlam of hilarity. The uproar soon subsided, however, for not one in the crowded room but was now thoroughly wonderstruck at the demonstration. Some of the older people began to step forward, writing the most difficult names they could think of—meaningless words, groups of figures. A teacher chalked a proposition in algebra. Without error all were called out promptly. The climax was reached when one of the church elders advanced to the board and while writing fixed his eyes on something in his half-opened hand. Without hesitation the blindfolded unknown announced, "'Mr. Story is writing the name of one of the apostles, but is thinking of a penknife.' The clapping which followed was scattered and brief. "'It's simply uncanny!' exclaimed one of Kate's neighbors. Kate, glancing back toward Jack, shook her head. Up there, in full view, she could not possibly see how he could have anything to do with it. At this point the minister again stepped forward. "'Will you answer a few questions?' he scrawled. "'With pleasure, Mr. Borden.' "'How old am I?' Forty-nine next September.' The minister ran his fingers through his hair perplexedly. 
How old is Mrs. Borden?' There was a slight pause, then in gallant tones came the answer, Twenty-two. Amid a renewal of laughter and much clapping from the ladies, the minister was about to turn away, when on second thought he turned back and wrote, Name the Twelve Apostles. For the first time the learned seer displayed signs of uneasiness. After some stumbling, however, he completed the list. With a twinkle in his eyes, the preacher inscribed a second question. Name Joshua's captains. Professor Click cleared his throat, ran his fingers down his beard, moved uneasily in his chair, and at length, while a smile began to spread over the room, shook his head. "'But I'm thinking of them. Hard,' declared the minister, chuckling. The professor was again about to shake his head, when suddenly he paused— then replied boldly, Shem, Ham, Hezekiah, Hittite, Peter, Goliath, Solomon, and Pharaoh. It was during the shouts of merriment following this ridiculous response that Kate's mystification began to dissolve. Glancing again toward her brother, she saw that, despite a show of laughing, there was an uneasiness in his face, similar to that shown by the professor and when presently she saw him cast a covertly longing eye toward a pile of Bibles in the next window, she turned back to the platform, silently laughing. She thought she had discovered the source of the thought-waves. The success of the brazenly invented answer to the last question, meantime, had quite restored the professor's confidence, and as the minister went on he continued to respond in the same ridiculous fashion, claiming, on the minister's protest, that he was only reading the thought-waves as they came to him. And finally the pastor laughingly gave it up. At the next and final demonstration, mystification of another kind came to the observant Kate. Rising to his feet, the mind-reader announced that he would now inform a few of the stronger thinkers before him the subject of their thoughts and both in his manner and tone Kate noted an unmistakable nervousness. Glancing toward Jack, she saw that his face also was grave, and with a stirring of apprehension of she knew not what, she waited. "'The first thought which reaches me,' began the professor, "'is from Miss Mary Andrews. Miss Andrews thinks her pretty toque is on straight. It's not quite.' I think one pin is coming out." Following this laughingly applauded reading, the speaker informed Miss James that she was thinking her lace collar was not loose behind, which was quite correct, as also was Mr. Storey's impression that there was not a long blonde hair on his coat-collar. There was not. Then Kate distinctly saw the speaker take a deep breath. "'Mr. Joseph Potter is a strong thinker he proceeded. I read several thoughts from Mr. Potter. The old farmer, to whom the whole performance had appeared as nothing less than magic, leaned out into the aisle, breathless and staring. "'It seems to me, Mr. Potter,' the mind-reader went on, "'it seems to me you are thinking about some important business deal, some big deal concerning land.' The old man's mouth opened. "'Also, it seems to me that this land may be worth 
a great deal more than there was an exclamation a commotion and burke the real estate man was on his feet a moment he stood staring as though doubting his ears then catching up his hat he said in a loud voice come mr potter we must go that other engagement you know i had forgotten it the old man sprang up and brushed burke aside go on go on he cried toward the figure on the platform the startled audience gazed from one to another several arose it seems to me resumed alex quietly that there is a waterfall on your farm and that hold on there hold on the words came in a shout and springing into the aisle burke strode toward the platform purple with rage what do you mean what are you doing who is this man he demanded at the top of his lungs i demand to know what does he mean by swiftly hobbling down the aisle behind him the old man attempted to pass roughly burke pushed him back the minister stepped forward mr burke what do you mean what does this man here mean by by yes by what mr burke by making reflections against me shouted burke i demand an explanation i but my dear sir i am sure nothing was said the old man dodged by ran to the edge of the platform and cried in a thin high voice do you mean my farm my farm that burke wants to buy there was a momentary silence during which here and there could be heard long indrawn gasps then abruptly alex tore the bandage from his eyes swept off the hat and beard and stepped to the front there need be no further mystery about this he declared in a grimly steady voice on the train this morning jack orr and i accidentally overheard from burke came a scream he sprang forward with raised fists faltered and suddenly whirling about dashed down the aisle for the door and out and in the breathless silence which followed alex completed his explanation as the old man climbed the platform steps and extended a shaking hand the applause that burst from every corner of the room fairly rattled the windows, and as the uproar continued, and Alex sprang hastily to the floor, he was surrounded by a jostling, enthusiastic crowd of strangers from whom in vain he sought to escape. Some minutes later, enjoying tea and cake in a circle which included the minister, the latter smilingly remarked, "'But you haven't yet explained the rest of the mysterious doings, Master Alex.' aren't you going to enlighten us all around prefer to keep it a secret eh well if you will promise us another exposition i'm sure we will agree not to press you declared the minister heartily and as a matter of fact save kate no one has yet solved the mystery not even the janitor although on cutting the grass a few days later he picked up beneath one of the schoolroom windows an unaccountable piece of fine copper wire End of chapter. Chapter 14 of The Young Railroaders This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs Chapter 14 The Last of the Freight Thieves 
"'No, I'm not after you this time,' laughingly responded Detective Boyle to Jack's half-serious inquiry on recognizing his visitor at the station, one evening a month later, as the road detective who on the previous memorable occasion had called in company with the sheriff. "'Instead I want your assistance. Do you know,' he asked, seating himself, "'that your friends, the freight thieves, are operating again on the division?' "'No,' said Jack in surprise. "'They are, and they have evolved some scheme that is more baffling even than the haunting trick you spoiled for them here last spring. Every week they are getting away with valuable stuff from one of the night freights between Claxton and Eastfield, while the train is actually en route, apparently. That sounds incredible, I know, but it is the only possible conclusion to come to, since the train does not stop between those places— and I made sure the goods each time were aboard when it left Claxton. Jack whistled. That does look a problem, doesn't it? But where do I come in, Mr. Boyle? Last evening, while thinking the matter over, the trick the thieves used here at the junction recurred to me. The man shipped in a box. It came to me. Why couldn't that same dodge be played back against them in this case? Oh, I see. "'Have yourself shipped in a box and stolen by them. "'Clever idea!' exclaimed Jack. "'Not so bad, I think, myself. "'Well, in the country between Claxton and Eastfield, "'where it is my theory the gang has its headquarters, "'there are no telephone or telegraph lines, "'and it struck me it would be a good plan "'to take along someone with me "'who, in case of things going wrong, "'could make his way back to the railroad "'and cut in on the wire and call for help.' "'and naturally you were the first one I thought of. "'Do you want the job?' asked the detective. "'I'd jump at the chance,' Jack agreed eagerly. "'It'd be more fun than enough. "'But, Mr. Boyle, how do you know that the boxes are taken "'to the freight thieves' headquarters, unopened, "'and not broken into right at the railroad?' "'I figure that out of the number and size of the packages "'they have taken each time, just a good load for a light wagon.' and anyway you can see that that would be their safest plan. If they broke up boxes near the track, they would leave clues that would be sure to be found sooner or later, and put us on their trail. And through a friend in the wholesale dry-goods business at Claxton, who I'll see down there tonight, the detective went on, I can make practically sure of our being stolen together. The thieves have shown a partiality for his goods, and by having our boxes attractively labeled silk, and placed just within the car door, there will be little chance of the robbers passing us by. My plan is to bring it off tomorrow night. Would that suit you? concluded the detective. Yes, sir. That is, if I can get away. For it will take all night, I suppose? Yes, there will be no trouble about your getting off, though. I spoke to Alan before I came down, said Boyle, rising. All right, it is arranged. You take the 5.30 down tomorrow evening, with the necessary instruments, and I'll be at the station to meet you. Good night. As Boyle had promised, Jack had no difficulty in arranging to be off duty the following night, and early that evening he alighted from the train at Claxton to find the railroad detective awaiting him. The instruments, eh? queried Boyle, indicating a parcel under Jack's arm as they left the station. Yes, sir and I have some wire and a file in my pocket. That's the ticket, and everything here is arranged nicely. We will head for the warehouse at once. 
"'Here's the other bolt of silk, Mr. Brooke,' the detective announced a few minutes later, as they entered the office adjoining a large brick building. "'All ready for us?' Hm. He's a pretty small bolt, isn't he?' commented the merchant, eyeing Jack with some surprise. "'A trifle, but he makes up for size in quality,' declared the detective, while Jack blushed. "'He is the youngster who solved the ghost riddle, and spoiled this same gang's game at Midway Junction.' The merchant warmly shook Jack's hand. "'I'm glad to meet you, my boy,' he said. "'After that, I can readily believe what Boyle says.' "'Yes, I am all ready. This way, please,' he requested. Following the speaker, Jack and the detective found themselves in a large shipping-room. As they entered, a workman with a pot and ink-brush in his hand was surveying lettering he had just completed on a good-sized packing-case. "'Here are the goods, Judson,' announced the merchant. "'All ready, sir,' the workman responded, eyeing Jack and the detective curiously. "'Did you substitute boards with knot-holes?' Mr. Brooke asked. "'Yes, sir. This is the door,' said the man, indicating two wide boards at one end. "'I use both wooden buttons and screw-hooks on the inside, as you suggested.' "'Good.' The detective examined the box. "'You've made a good job of it,' he commented. "'I suppose this is the boy's?' he added, turning to a smaller box, on which also were the words, Silk, Valuable. With lively interest, Jack examined the case. "'Get in, and let us see how it fits,' suggested the merchant. Jack did so. "'Fine,' he announced. "'I could ride all night in it easily, either sitting or lying down curled up on my side.' Detective Boyle glanced at his watch. "'You may as well stay right there, Jack,' he said. We will start just as soon as the wagon is ready. It's ready now. Judson, go and bring the dray around, the merchant directed. As the man left, the detective produced and handed Jack a small pocket revolver. Here, take this, Jack, said he. I hope you'll not have to use it, but we must take all precautions. Now to box you in. So saying, the detective fitted the door of Jack's box into place, and Jack on the inside secured it with the hooks and wooden buttons, and announced, OK. The detective then entered his own box, and with the merchant's assistance, closed the opening. As he tested it, there was a rattle of wheels without, and the big door rumbled open. A few minutes later the two boxes of valuable silk had been slid out onto the truck and the first stage of the strange journey had begun. As planned, it was dusk when the two boxes reached the freight depot. The station agent himself met them. "'Everything okay, Boyle?' he whispered. "'Okay. Place us right before the door, with the lettering out,' the detective directed. The agent did as requested, and with a final, "'Good luck!' closed and sealed the car door just as the clanging of a bell announced the approach of an engine. A crash and a jar told the two unsuspected travellers that their car had been coupled. There was a whistle, a rumble, a clanking over switch-points, and they were on their way. The wheels had been drumming over the rail-joints for perhaps half an hour, and the disappearance of the light which had filtered through the car door had announced the fall of darkness, when there came a screeching of brakes. 
"'Where do you suppose we are now, Mr. Boyle?' asked Jack from his box. "'It's the grade just north of Axford Road. When we hit the upgrade two miles beyond, we may begin to expect something. It was along here I figured that the—' "'What's that?' Both listened. "'One of the brakemen, isn't it?' suggested Jack. "'What is he doing down on the edge of the car-roof?' The next sound was of something slapping against the car-door. Suddenly the detective gave vent to a cry that was barely suppressed. "'Jack! I've got it! I've got it at last!' he whispered excitedly. "'The freight thieves have bought up one of the brakemen. He lets himself down to the car-door by a rope, opens it, and throws the stuff out!' Jack's exclamation of delight at this final revelation of the heart of the mystery was followed by one of consternation. "'But won't we get an awful shaking up if we're pitched off going at full speed?' he said in alarm. "'We may. We'll have to take it. It's all in the game, you know,' declared Boyle grimly. "'Sit tight and brace hard, and it'll not be so bad, though. Shh! Here he is.' There was a sound of feet scraping against the car-door, a rattle as the seal was broken and the clasp freed, then a rumble and the sudden full roar of the train told the two in the boxes that the door had been opened. Swinging within, the intruder closed the door behind him and lit a match. Peering from a knot-hole, Jack saw that the detective's guess was right. It was a brakeman. As Jack watched, the man produced and lit a dark lantern, and turned it on the cases before him. Jack held his breath as the light streamed through the cracks of his own box. "'Just to order,' muttered the brakeman audibly. "'And the bigger one, too. I'll not have to haul any out.' Then, to Jack's momentary alarm, then amusement, the man seated himself on the box above him. Presently, as Jack was wondering what the trainman was waiting for, from the distant engine came the two long and two short toots for a crossing, and the man started to his feet. With his eye to the knot-hole, Jack watched. Again came a whistle, and the creaking of brakes. Immediately the brakeman slid the door back a few inches, flashed his lantern four times, muffled it, and ran the door open its full width. The critical moment had come. Gathering himself together, Jack braced with knees and elbows. The trainman seized the box, swung it to the door, and tipped it forward. The next instant Jack felt himself hurled out into the darkness. For one terrible moment he felt himself hurtling through space. Then came a crackle of branches, the box whirled over and over, again plunged downward, and brought up with a crash. A brief space Jack lay dazed, in a heap, head down. But he had been only slightly stunned, and recovering, he righted himself, and found with satisfaction that he had suffered no more than a bruise of the scalp and an elbow. He had not long to speculate on his whereabouts. From near at hand came a sound of breaking twigs, and a voice. "'Here's one,' it said. Only with difficulty did Jack avoid betraying himself. It was the voice of the man Watts. "'What is it?' inquired a second voice. Through a crack a light appeared. "'Silk!' announced Watts. "'A good weight, too,' he added, tipping the box. "'Catch hold!' The packing-case was caught up, and rocked and jolted. Jack felt himself carried for what he judged a full quarter-mile. 
As the men slowed up a gleam of moonlight showed through the knot-hole, and peering forth he discovered a tree-lined road, and a two-horse wagon. Sliding the box into the rear of the wagon, and well to the front, the men disappeared. The wait that followed was to Jack the most trying experience of the evening. Had the detective safely landed? Was there not a possibility of the larger box having been shattered? Or sufficiently broken to reveal its true contents, and disclose the plot to the freight robbers? And what then would be his fate? These and many other disquieting possibilities passed through Jack's mind, causing him several times as the minutes went by to finger the hooks and buttons which would permit of his escape. Finally snapping twigs, then heavy, stumbling footfalls allayed his anxiety, and the two men reappeared, staggering under the box containing the officer. With difficulty the unsuspecting thieves raised the heavy packing-case to the tailboard of the wagon. "'It won't go in,' said Watts's companion. "'Push this way a little,' Watts directed. "'I can't. Look out!' There was a scramble, and the box crashed to the ground. At the same moment came a muffled exclamation, and Jack caught his breath. Was it the detective? If so, had the others overheard it? With relief, however, he heard Watts, who apparently was the chief of the gang, call his companion a mule, and order him to catch hold again. The box this time was successfully slid aboard, and at once the two men climbed to the seat, and the wagon rumbled off. As they rattled along over a badly kept road, Jack gave as close attention to the passing scenery as his limited view permitted, in order that he might be able to find his way back to the railroad if it should prove necessary. This did not promise to be difficult. On either side the dim moonlight showed an unbroken succession of trees, and also that the robbers were continuing in one direction, apparently due south. For what seemed at least two miles they proceeded. Then appeared a small clearing, and with a quickening of the pulse Jack felt the wagon slow up and turn in. They were at their destination. A forbiddingly suitable place for its purpose it was. Standing out darkly on the crest of a rise two hundred yards back was a low shanty-like house, in which appeared a single gleam of light. Between, to the road, stretched a desolate moonlit prospect of stumps, decaying logs, and brush-piles. On either side the woods formed a towering wall of blackness. Rocking and pitching, the wagon made its way up a ruddy corkscrew lane. They reached the house, and the door opened, and a tall, unpleasant-looking woman appeared and greeted the men. "'Good luck, eh?' she remarked briefly. "'Sure. Don't we always have good luck?' responded Watts. "'Is supper ready?' "'Yes. You uns better come in before you opens them boxes,' said the woman. "'All right.' Passing on, the wagon came at last to a halt before a good-sized barn. The two men leaped to the ground, and while one of them opened the large side doors, the other proceeded to back the wagon to it. As the two freight thieves then unhooked and led their horses to the stable, there came to Jack's ears a welcome tapping. "'Are you all right, lad?' whispered the detective. "'Yes, okay, sir, though a bit nervous,' Jack acknowledged. "'Keep cool, and we'll soon have them where we want them. As they're going in to supper first, we'll not leave the boxes till then. That'll give us just the opportunity we want to look around and arrange things nicely.' 
Shh! Here they come. Catch hold, said Watts. Jack heard the detective's box slide out, and up from Watts, the staggering steps of the men across the barn floor, and a thud as the box was dropped. At what then immediately followed, Jack for a moment doubted his senses. It was the voice of Watts saying quietly and coldly, "'Now my clever friend in the box, kindly come out!' They had heard Boyles's exclamation when the box had fallen. Scarcely breathing, Jack listened. Would the detective give himself up without a— There was a muffled report, instantly a second, louder, then silence. "'Will you come out now?' demanded Watts. To Jack's horror there was no response. Watts repeated the order, then called on his companion for an axe, and there followed the sound of blows and splintering wood. "'Now haul him out!' Terror-stricken, Jack listened. Suddenly there came the sound of a scramble, then of a terrific struggle. The detective was all right. It had been only a ruse. Uttering a suppressed hurrah, Jack began hurriedly undoing the unfastenings of his door, to get out to the detective's assistance. Before he had opened it, however, there was the sound of a heavy fall and a triumphant shout from Watts. Promptly Jack paused, debated a moment, and restored the fastenings. He would wait. Perhaps they would bind Boyle and leave him in the barn. A moment later Jack regretted his decision. Through the knot-hole he saw the detective led by, his arms bound behind him, and one of the freight robbers on either side. The voices and footsteps died away in the direction of the house, and Jack fell to wondering what he should do. Before he had decided, he heard the voices of the men returning. Apprehensively, he waited. Had they any suspicion of his presence in the second packing case? While he held his breath and grimly clutched his revolver, they slid his box to the rear of the wagon, lifted it out, and deposited it on the barn floor. "'Going to have a look at it? Make sure it hasn't some live stock in it, too?' inquired the second man. Jack's heart stood still. "'No, it's all right,' declared Watts confidently. "'We'll have supper first. And to Jack's unspeakable relief they passed out and closed the barn door. Listening until from the house had come the slamming of a door, Jack once more freed the fastenings within the box, slipped the board aside— again listened a moment and crawled forth. As he stood stretching his cramped limbs, he glanced about. A tear of what looked like bolts of cloth in the moonlight beneath one of the barn windows caught his eye. He stepped over. It was silk, silk such as he had seen in the warehouse at Claxton. Instantly there came to Jack a startling suggestion. As quickly he decided to act upon it. They may never catch on, he told himself delightedly and in any case it will give me a good start back for the railroad, for help. Glancing from the barn window, to make sure all was quiet in the direction of the house, he drew his box into the moonlight, took out the parcel containing the telegraph instruments, and proceeded to remove the hooks and buttons and all other signs of the door. Then quickly he filled the box with bolts of silk from the pile beneath the window. That done he found a hammer and nails, and muffling the hammer with his handkerchief, as quietly as possible, nailed the boards into place. Triumphantly he slid the box to its former position on the floor. "'I think that will fool you, Mr. Watts,' he said with a smile, 
and catching up the telegraph instruments he turned to the door. On the threshold he started back. The two men, and two others, were returning from the house. In alarm Jack looked about for a way of escape. Across the barn was a smaller door. He ran for it on tiptoe, darted through, and found himself in the stable. Passing quietly on to the outer door, which the cracks and moonlight revealed, he waited until the four men had entered the main barn, then slipped forth, and keeping in the shadows, ran toward the house. A beam of light streamed from one of the rear windows. Jack made for it, and cautiously approaching, peered within. The woman he had seen at the door was at a table, washing dishes, her back toward him, and just beyond, facing him, and bound hand and foot in a big armchair, was the detective. For some minutes Jack tried in vain to attract the officer's attention. Then the woman obligingly stepped into the pantry with some dishes, and quickly Jack gave a single tap on the window-pane. Boyle looked up instantly, started, smiled, then nodded his head in the direction of the railroad. Jack held up the parcel containing the telegraph instruments. The detective nodded again, and in a moment Jack was off. It was an exhausting run over the rough, little-used road, now darkened by the overhanging trees, but at length Jack recognized the point at which he had been carried from the woods, and turning in, he soon found himself at the railroad. Hurrying to the nearest telegraph pole, he swarmed up to the cross-tree, and quickly filed through the wire on one side of the glass insulator. The broken wire fell jangling to the rails. Connecting an end of the wire he had brought with him to the wire on the other side of the pin, Jack slid to the ground, made the connections with the instrument, and the relay clicked closed. At once someone on the wire said, "'Who had it open? What did you say?' "'Alex!' exclaimed Jack, at once recognizing the sending, and was about to break in when the instrument clicked. Seventeen just coming. C.X.' Claxton and seventeen, just what we want. Quickly interrupting, Jack sent, CX, hold seventeen, hold her. Then, to X, this is Jack, Al. I'm in the woods about four miles from Claxton. We found the freight thieves, but they have Boyle prisoner. Ask the chief to have seventeen take on a posse at CX and rush them here. I'll wait here and lead them back. If they are quick, they'll capture the whole gang. "'Okay, okay, good for you!' shot back Alex. The wire was silent a moment, then Jack heard the order go on to Claxton as desired. Twenty-five minutes later, waiting in the darkness on the track, Jack saw the headlight of the fast-coming freight. The engineer, on the lookout, discovered him, pulled up, and a moment after Jack was off through the woods, followed by two officers and several of the train crew. When they reached the farm, lights were still moving about in the barn. Stealthily the party made for it, and surrounded it. "'How would you like to lead the way in, Jack?' whispered the sheriff, as they paused before the door. "'That would be only fair, after the trick Watts played on you.' Jack caught at the idea delightedly, and all being ready, boldly threw open the barn door and entered with drawn revolver, followed by the sheriff. The four occupants were so completely taken by surprise that for a moment they stood immovable about a box of dry goods they had been repacking. "'How do you do, Mr. Watts?' said Jack, smiling. 
This is my friend the sheriff, and the barn is surrounded. I think you would be foolish not to give up. Yes, hands up, crisply ordered the sheriff. And slowly the four pairs of hands went into the air, and the entire balance of the long successful gang of freight thieves were prisoners. It was Jack himself who rushed off to the house and freed Detective Boyle. A half-hour later, with one of the robbers' own wagons filled with a great quantity of recovered stolen goods, the sheriff escorted his prisoners back to the railroad, and before daylight they were in the jail at Eastfield. Jack received considerable attention because of his part in the capture, and the affair still forms one of the popular yarns among trainmen on that division of the Middle Western. End of chapter. Chapter 15 of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter 15 The Dude Operator. Alex Ward, like most vigorous, manly boys of his type, had a fixed dislike for anything approaching foppishness, especially in other boys. Consequently, when on reporting at the Exeter office one evening, he was introduced to Wilson Jennings, Alex treated him with but little more than the necessary courtesy. For the newcomer, an operator but little older than himself, was distinctly a dude. From his patent leather shoes and polka-dotted stockings, to his red and yellow banded white straw hat. His carefully pressed suit was the very latest thing in light-checked grey. He wore a collar which threatened to envelop his ears, and his white tie was of huge dimensions. Also he possessed the fair pink-and-white complexion of a girl. Alex was not alone in his derisive attitude toward the stranger. Shortly following the appearance of the night chief, Mr. Jennings nodded every one a good evening, and departed, and immediately there was a general roar of laughter in the operating room. "'Where did he fall from? Whose complexion powder is he advertising? Did you get on to his picture socks?' were some of the remarks bandied about. When the chief announced that the new operator was from the east, and was being sent to the little foothills tank station of Bonepile, there was a fresh outburst of hilarity. "'Why, that cowboy outfit near there will string him up to the tank spout,' declared the operator on whose wire Bone Pile was located. "'It's the toughest proposition on the wire.' "'On the quiet, that is just why Jordan is sending him,' the night chief said. "'Not to have him strung up, that is, but to put him in the way of finding himself, so to speak.' "'He'll certainly find himself there, then.' "'If there's anything left to find when the ranch crew get through,' laughed the operator. "'I'd give five real dollars to see that show, and walk back.' "'At that you might have to walk back, if you wagered your money on the outcome,' responded the chief more gravely, turning to his desk. "'Clothes don't make a man. Neither do they unmake one. The dude may surprise us yet.' Whether the outcome of his appointment to the little watering station was to be a surprise or no, there was no doubt of Wilson Jennings' surprise when the following morning he alighted from the train at Bonepile, and as the train sped on, awoke to the realization that he was entirely alone. 
blankly he gazed at the little red-brown dry-goods box depot, the water tank, the hills to the west, and to north, south, and east, the limitless stretching prairie. He had never imagined anything like this when he had decided on giving up a good position in the east to taste some adventure in the great west. However, here he was, and picking up his two suitcases, the boy made his way into the tiny operating room, and on into the bunk kitchen living room behind. For here, a hundred miles from anywhere, the operator's board and lodging was provided by the railroad. Early that evening Wilson was sitting somewhat disconsolately at the telegraph-room window, when he was startled by a loud whoop. There was a second, then a rush of hoofs, and a party of cowboys came into view. It was the welcoming committee of the Bar O Ranch, the outfit referred to by the operator at Exeter. With a final whoop, the cowman thundered up to the station platform and dismounted. Muskoka Jones, a huge, heavily mustached ranchman over six feet in height, was first to reach the open window. Diving within to the waist, he brought a bottle down on the instrument table with a crash. "'Pardner, welcome to our city!' he shouted. The response should have been instantaneous and hearty. Instead, there was a strange quiet. The following barrows faltered and exchanged glances. Surely the Western had not at last fallen down on its first obligation at Bonepile. For since the coming of the rails they had regarded the station operator as a sort of social adjunct to the ranch. The keeper of an open house of hospitality, their daily paper, the final learned authority on all matters of politics and sport, and if this latest change of operators had brought them... Muskoka spoke again, and the worst was realized. "'Well, you gal-faced little dude!' The cowmen crowded forward, and peering over Muskoka's broad shoulders, studied Wilson from head to foot with speechless scorn. Muskoka settled forward on his elbows. "'Are you a real operator?' he inquired. In a voice that sounded foolish even to himself, Wilson responded in the affirmative. "'Actual, real, male operator?' The cluster of bronze faces guffawed loudly. "'But you don't play cards, do you?' Muskoka asked incredulously. "'Now I bet you don't. Or smoke? Or chew? Or any of them wicked—' Here are some cigarettes, the other man laughed. Hopefully the boy extended the package, to have it snatched from his hand, scramblingly emptied, and the box flipped ceilingward. In falling the box brought further trouble. It struck something on the wall which emitted a hollow thud, and glancing up the cowman espied Wilson's new, brilliantly banded hat. In a trice Muskoka's long arm had secured it, with the common inspiration the cluster of faces withdrew. The hat sailed high in the air, there was an ear-splitting rattle of shots, and the shattered remnant was returned to Wilson with ceremony. "'There, all proper millineried, de la bone pile,' said Muskoka, "'and don't mention it. Now give me that whitewashed fence you have around your ears.' The boy shrank further back in his chair, then suddenly turned and reached for the telegraph key. In a moment the big cowman's pistol was out. "'Back in your chair! Give me that white fence!' he commanded. Trembling, Wilson removed his collar and handed it over. The 
cowman stepped back and calmly proceeded to shoot a row of holes in it. There, he announced, returning it. Much better. That's bone-pile fashion. Put it on. Meekly Wilson obeyed, and the circle of cowmen roared at the result. Now, proceeded Muskoka, that coat of yours is nice, very nice, but I think it'd look better inside out. Try it. Wilson again turned desperately toward the key. The cowman banged on the table with his pistol, and slowly the boy complied. And a few minutes after, on a further command, he emerged from the doorway, in shattered hat, perforated collar, ridiculously turned coat, and with trousers rolled to his knees, a spectacle that set the cowboys staggering and shouting about the platform in convulsions of laughter. In fact, the result was so pleasing that after enjoying it to the full, the ranchman decided to carry the hazing no further, and only requested of Wilson that he wave his hat and give three cheers for the citizens of Bonepile. They mounted their ponies and scampered away. Hastening into the telegraph instruments, Wilson began frantically calling Exeter. Before X had responded, however, the boy paused and sat back in his chair, a new light coming into his eyes. "'Yes, sir, I wager they sent them down here to do this,' he said aloud. Suddenly he arose and began removing the turned coat. "'I'll stick it out here for two weeks, if they lynch me,' declared the dude grimly. It was early Wednesday evening of a week later that the monthly gold shipment came down from the Red Valley mines. The consignment was an unusually large one, and in view of the youth of the new operator the superintendent wired a request that Big Bill Smith, the driver of the mines express, remain at the station until the treasure was safely aboard train. On reading the message, however, Big Bill flatly refused. "'Why, it's the night of Dan Haggerty's dance!' he pointed out indignantly. "'Doesn't the superintendent know that?' "'The superintendent didn't and didn't care,' was the response to the wired protest. "'The driver was supposed to remain at all times. It was an old understanding.' Understanding or not, Big Bill declined to remain and stormed out the door, announcing that he would get someone down from the Bar-O ranch. Half an hour later Muskoka Jones appeared. "'Good evening. I'm sorry it was necessary to trouble you, sir,' apologized Wilson. "'Good evening, Willie. Don't mention it,' was the big cowman's scornful response. Then, having momentarily paused to cast a contemptuous eye over the lad's neat attire, he threw himself on the floor in the farthermost corner of the room, and promptly fell fast asleep. Some time after darkness had fallen, the young telegrapher, dozing in his chair at the instrument table, was startled into consciousness by the sound of approaching hoofbeats. With visions of Indians or robbers, he sprang to the window, to discover a dim, tall figure dismounting on the platform. In alarm he turned to call the sleeping guard, but momentarily hesitating, looked again. The figure came into the light of the window, and with relief he recognized Iowa Burns, another of the Bar-O cowmen. "'Hello, kid,' said the newcomer, entering. "'Where's old Muskokie?' "'Good evening. Over there asleep, sir. I suppose you knew he was taking Mr. Smith's place, guarding the gold until the train came in?' "'Sure, yes. I was there when Bill come up.' 
He crossed to the side of the snoring Jones and kicked him sharply on the sole of his boots. Muskoki, get up! He shouted. Here's something to help keep out the chills. Again and more sharply he kicked the sleeping man, while the boy looked on, smiling. Suddenly the smile disappeared, and the lad's heart leaped into his throat. He was gazing into the black round muzzle of a pistol, and beyond it was a face set with a deadly purpose. Instinctively his staring eyes flickered toward the box of bullion. "'Yep, that's it. But wink an eye again and you get it,' said Burns coldly, advancing. Now get back there up again the corner of the table, and stand, so if anyone comes along you'll appear to be leaning there conversing. Go on, quick!" Dazed, cold with fear, the boy obeyed, and Iowa, producing a sheaf of hide thongs, proceeded to bind his arms to his side. As the renegade tightened a knot securing the boy's left leg to the leg of the table, Muskoka's snoring abruptly ceased, and the sleeper moved uneasily. In a flash Iowa was over him, pistol in hand. But the snoring presently resumed, and after watching him sharply for a moment, Iowa returned to the boy. "'Now move, remember, and I shoot,' he repeated warningly. "'To make sure, I'm going to fix up that snoring idiot over there before I finish you. And don't you as much as shuffle your hoof!' Recovering the bundle of thongs, he strode back to the sleeper. As previously the man's back had been turned, Wilson had shot a frantic glance about him. In their sweep his eyes had fallen on the partly open drawer in the end of the table, immediately below his left hand, and in the drawer had noted the bowl of a pipe. At the moment nothing had resulted, but as the renegade's back was again turned, his eyes again dropped to the drawer, and a sudden wild possibility occurred to him. His heart seemed literally to stand still at the audacity the danger of it. But might it not be possible? The light from the single lamp on the wall opposite was poor, and his left side thus in deep shadow. And his left hand—he tried it—yes, though tightly bound at the wrist, the hand itself was free. His first day at the station, the visit of the men from the ranch, Muskoka's contemptuous greeting, recurred to him. Here was his opportunity of vindication. With a desperate clenching of the teeth the boy decided, and at once began cautiously straining at the thongs about his wrist, to obtain the reach necessary. Finally they slipped, slightly, but enough. Carefully he leaned sideways, his fingers extended. He reached the pipe, fumbled a moment, and secured it. Burns was on his knees beside the unconscious guard, splicing a thong. An instant Wilson hesitated then springing erect, pointed the pipe-stem, and in a voice he scarcely knew, a voice sharp as the crack of a whip, cried, "'Hands up, Burns! I got you! Quick, I'll shoot!' The renegade cowman, taken completely by surprise, leaped to his feet with a cry, without turning, his hands instinctively half-raised. "'Quick! Up! Up!' cried the boy. A breathlessly critical instant the hands wavered, then slowly, reluctantly, they ascended. For a moment the young operator stood panting, but half-believing the witness of his own eyes to the success of the stratagem. Then at the top of his voice he cried, "'Mr. Jones! Muskoka! Wake up! Wake up!' Iowa, muttering beneath his breath, paused anxiously to watch results. "'Muskoka! Muskoka!' shouted the lad. The snoring continued evenly, unbrokenly. 
Iowa indulged in a dry laugh. "'Save your wind, kid,' he said. "'I fixed a drink he took before he came down.' At this news the boy's heart sank. "'But look here, kid.' Iowa turned carefully, hands still in the air. "'Look here, can't we square this thing up? You got the drop on me, okay, and with a blame little pea-shooter,' he added, catching a glimpse, as he thought, of the end of a small black barrel, but nevertheless continuing his attitude of surrender. "'You got the drop, and you're a smart kid, you are. But can't we fix this thing up? You take half, say? I'll be glad to let you in. Honest.' and no one would ever think you was in the game. Come, what do you say?" Though apparently listening, the young operator was in reality urgently casting about in his mind for other expedients. Obviously it would be too dangerous to attempt to reach with the fingers of one of his bound hands the thongs holding his left leg to the leg of the table. He might reveal the pipe, or drop it. And neither could he reach the telegraph key to get in touch with someone on the wire. And in any case, how could that help him? For the next train was not due for two hours, and it did not seem possible he could carry on his bluff that length of time. But think as he would, the wire seemed the only hope. Could he not reach the key in some way? The solution came as Iowa ventured a short step nearer and repeated his suggestion. At first sight it seemed as ridiculously impossible as the bluff with a pipe, but quickly the boy weighed the chances, and determined to take the risk. "'Now, Mr. Iowa,' he said, "'you are to do just exactly what I tell you, step by step, so much and no more. If you make any other move, if I only think you are going to, I shall shoot. My finger is pressing the trigger constantly, and I guess you can see that at this range, though my hold on the gun is a bit cramped, I could not miss you if I wanted to. Listen now.' You will come forward until you can reach the chair here by sticking out your foot. Then you will push it back along the table to the wall, and turn it face to me. Then you will sit down in it. After that I'll tell you some more. Go ahead. And remember, my finger always pressing the trigger." As Burns came forward, infinitely puzzled, the boy turned slowly so that the muzzle of the pipe continued to cover the would-be bullion-thief. Gingerly Iowa reached out with his foot, and shoved the chair back to the wall, and turning, backed into it, and sat down. With a shadow of a grin on his face, he demanded, "'What next?' "'Now, slowly let your left arm down at full length on the table. There. Hand is on the key, isn't it?' "'Now?' continued Wilson, who never for an instant allowed his eyes to wander from the man's face, "'Now feel with your fingers at the back of the key, and find a screw-head standing up.' "'Which one? There are two or three, said Iowa craftily. "'No, there are not. There's just one. And I give you three to find it,' said the young operator sharply. "'One, two—' "'Oh, go on, I got it.' exclaimed Iowa angrily. "'Below the screw-head is a binding-nut. Loosen it, and turn it leftwise. Found it? Now take hold of the screw-head again, and turn it to the left. It turns free, doesn't it?' "'Sure.' "'Turn it about four times completely around. Now the binding-nut again, down the other way, till it's tight. Got it?' 
Now, hold your fingertips over the black button at the inner end of the key, and hit down on it smartly. There was a click. That's it. It is plenty of play, hasn't it? Works up and down about an inch, if that's what you mean, growled Iowa, still puzzled. But what? I'm going to give you a lesson in telegraphy, and you are going to— Iowa saw and exploded. Well, of all the—say, what do you think? All right, sharply, bravely, though inwardly stealing himself for catastrophe, the lad counted one, two, again he won. Oh, go on, spluttered Iowa through gritting teeth, and the boy resumed. Hit the key a sharp rap. Pretty good. Now, two raps, one right after the other. Good. Now, those are what we call dots. Remember. Now, press the key down, hold it for just a moment, and let it come up again. Very good. You could learn telegraphy quickly, Mr. Burns. That is what we call a dash. With the situation apparently so well in hand, Wilson was beginning almost to enjoy it. Now I have you do what I've been aiming at, and remember always— my finger is constantly pressing the trigger. Now then, feel just this side of the key button below. The little button of a lever. Got it? Press it from you. There was a single sharp upward click of relay and sounder. The key was open, ready for operation. Now listen. I want you to make the letter X. A dot, a dash, then two more dots right together and keep repeating till I stop you." Still under the spell of the fancied revolver and the boy's unfaltering gaze, the renegade cowman obeyed, and the telegraph instruments clicked out a painfully deliberate, but fairly readable, X. It was an idle half-hour, and when the dispatcher at Exeter heard his call he glanced up from a magazine, listened a moment, and impatiently remarking, "'Some idiot student!' returned to his reading. But steadily, insistently, the repetition of X's continued, and at length he reached forward, struck open the key, and demanded, Who? Sign! Clumsily came the answer, B. Bone pile! Now what's happening down there? It doesn't sound like the new operator, either. The wire again clicked open, and slowly, in the same heavy hand, the mystified and then amazed dispatcher read, Help, held, up, after, gold, tied to, table, got drop on him, making him send, B. The dispatcher grasped his key. Good boy, good boy, he hurled back. Keep it up for twenty-five minutes and we'll get help to you. There's an extra engine at H waiting for ninety-two. I'll start her right down." And therewith he whirled off into an urgent succession of H's. But through young Jennings' strange feat in telegraphy, help was nearer even than the unexpected sucker from Hillside. Despite the sleeping draft Burns had administered to Muskoka Jones, the unaccustomed clicking of the telegraph instruments had begun to arouse the big cowman. When finally, in climax, came the lightning whir of the dispatcher's excited response, he gasped into consciousness, blinked, and suddenly found himself sitting upright, staring open-mouthed at the spectacle before him. 
The next moment, with a shout, he was on his feet in the middle of the floor, and the nerve-strung boy had fainted. As the lad sank forward, his pistol fell from his hand and rolled into the light. From Burns came an inarticulate cry, his jaw dropped, his eyes started in his head. Muskoka halted in his stride, wet his lips, and muttered incredulous words of admiration and amazement. Then in a moment he had cut Wilson free and stretched him on the floor. It was Iowa broke the silence. Rising, with compressed lips, he held toward Muskoka the butt of his pistol. "'Here, shoot me with my own gun,' he said hoarsely. "'I deserve it.' Muskoka considered. "'No,' he decided at length. "'Leave your gun as a present for the kid, and,' turning and indicating the door, "'get.' Thus was it the young dude operator proved himself, and came into possession of a handsome pearl-handled Colt's revolver, and, early the following morning, from a committee of the Barrow cowmen, headed by Muskoka Jones, a fine high-crowned, silver-spangled Mexican sombrero, to take the place of the hat they had destroyed, and, as a mark of esteem for the pluckiest little operator ever sent to Bonepile. More important still, however, the incident won Wilson immediate esteem at Division Headquarters, where one of the first of the operators to congratulate him was Alex Ward. End of chapter. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.